everybody, Kirk here. You are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church, for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and I am here with Dan Allen. Hello! And we today are uh, going to be talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. Um, Our last episodes, we talked about what it looks like um, to study a whole book, a book book of the Bible as a whole. Um, can you maybe summarize like why that's important for us to like look at a book, a book in terms of its entirety? Yeah. Well, I mean, you want to see that the author has a, a kind of a main purpose, a main point that he's writing the book for. So we want to hear that, uh, which really helps, especially when we're trying to discover the individual passages or difficult passages to read, like somehow it's going to fit in there. Uh, but you really want to hear the heartbeat of the author. It helps to not take things out of context and let really let the, the point of God through this human author really come forth. Yeah. It's God's word to his people is when you can see the whole picture. Yeah. And it's the idea that like we don't just read, it's not like um, we read books of the Bible where there's all these little individual verses that you can put up on your refrigerator, mm-hmm. like that are separated platitudes, bumper sticker type things. Right. It's, there's a, there, it's typically like a letter that's being written or some sort of book that is um, communicating um, as a whole, it is, it's a yeah. whole that is being communicated, yeah. which we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes and has a number of those, right? Like, uh, a three chord strand is not quickly broken. A number of those like verses that like people like to pull out and just yeah. use. Yeah. But it's helpful to see it as a whole because then you see how all the parts are going to be contributing to that yeah. whole mm-hmm. and therefore it helps you understand the parts individually. Yeah. So we did all that in some ways as... Um, kind of preparatory for these next episodes on the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, we're currently preaching through a book through Ecclesiastes at our church. And so what we want to do now is um, tackle it in three parts. We'll see how many episodes ends up being, but at least three parts. The first one will be the method. Then we'll get into the message and then the meaning. By so, me- yeah, we'll go. yeah. So by method, we mean sort of the approach uh, that the that the author is taking the tools that are being used, the type of mm-hmm. genre, like the type of writing the way that he it is, organizes the material to exactly. bring about his big point. Yeah. Maybe. So how he's the how of how he is communicating mm-hmm. his message. Mm-hmm. The message being what he's actually arguing, what what he's actually trying to communicate, the content and the subject matter of the book. Yeah. And then the meat by meaning we are we we're meaning by that the meaning of meaning, <laughs> but what we mean by that. Um, here is really we're trying to get three M's. That's all. No. Yeah. So the, the the meaning is more like what it means for us today in our context is mm-hmm. kind of what we mean by that application. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So before we jump into the method of the author, we, let's at least say what we have called the the book. We've given it a movie title per se or a message uh, series title. Uh, what do you remember what we have called it? No, I haven't. I don't remember at all. <laughs> of course, I do. Uh, chasing joy in a messed up world. Yeah. So that's what we understand the book to be. Yeah. Capturing, and he's trying to help the audience to experience this, because the fact is, we all do chase joy, and we all live in this messed up world. And yeah. he really is after our joy, and he's he wants to get us to the place where you can have joy in this messed up world. And so he wants to take us on a journey, but let's, uh, let's start with the method then. Yep. Of the author, how he organizes the material. Um, maybe we could start with the genre of, mm-hmm. of the author and what, like, 
maybe you could tell us like why even considering the genre is helpful when you're trying to study a book. Yeah. Well, first I'll tell you a setback even from there is like, what do we mean by genre? Or as my, one of my old professors, Dr. Carson used to say, genre. Uh, I think that's like English or something or Canadian. He was French French Canadian or something. Yeah. So, um, so like when you think of genres, um, like we are most familiar with that probably in terms of music. Um, so you have like rap country, rock and roll. Um, there are different styles of music where you music, where you expect they sort of, there are certain, um, it's almost like templates. It's like a that you expect the music to fit a certain form, mm-hmm. a certain format, mm-hmm. a s- format, certain type. Or we think of that with with movies. Mm-hmm. So they're like horror movies. There are comedies. You got rom coms. You know dramas. Right. Yeah. There's different forms that you expect it to take. Right. And so it, it sort of sets the parameters for how the movie is supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there are also different genres in writing mm-hmm. and different writing and different genres, therefore, in scripture, which mm-hmm. is writing. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be some of those different yeah. genres? Yeah. So there's uh, wisdom literature that we'll deal with today. Mm-hmm. There's uh, narrative. There's epistles, which are letters. Uh, there's his like uh, historical prophetic. Yep. Historical. Uh, there's law, apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic poetry. Yeah. Um, and now the interesting thing about genre is that in a lot of the spheres of life where we encounter different genres, we just, we kind of put on a different, uh, mindset as the receiver of this information automatically It's intuitive. Yeah. So one example I've used in the past, uh, quite often is if you open, picked up a newspaper and headline or for. A young millennial like you, I guess it's more of a opened your phone or something on the newspaper. You know what? I, I know what you a know newspa- what a newspaper. I know is. what okay. a newspaper. Anyhow, in in the headline said <sighs> Cubs eat twins alive. You know, you might think, oh well, the Minnesota uh, Twins got clobbered by the Cubs, the the, the, the Chicago Cubs, team, the baseball yeah. team. It was like nineteen to four or something like that. Um, and that's, that would be accurate if that was like a sports column. Like, yeah. And you would realize that that statement is not like an actual bear, a cub, mm-hmm. ate some little kids or something like that, twins, yeah. right? You automatically, intuitively know what the author is saying. Um, but if you did look up at the top and you realize you were in the obituary section, you'd be horrified yeah. because you'd realize, whoa, th- this is terrible. Somebody, two twins died because a bear ate them and um and they ate them alive mm-hmm. right now all of a sudden this picture is coming in your brain now nobody's taught you how to do that like i mean in your you learned it while you were young but it's just intuitive but the problem is when we come to the bible we don't always like do that intuitively realize we have to read this differently and there's yeah. a goodness in that because the the author is going to use certain tools in that genre in order to communicate his information and it really makes reading the bible all the more interesting and um, enjoyable because you're you're picking up on all these things. Yeah. Or if I say knock knock, you say who's there? Yeah. There's a certain like format that you <laughs> yeah. know for yeah. like a like a knock knock joke is kind of another would be. You I don't just know. If it totally would... left me hanging. You got. Well, nothing? I, did, I don't actually have a joke. <laughs> right. Knock knock. <laughs> who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting Moo! cow. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. <laughs> did you learn that from your son? <laughs> no, I can't remember who that was from. Anyway, so there's the, there's like certain like we all know to say who's there though. Yeah. That's like a, I don't know if that counts as a genre per se, but with those uh, knock knock jokes, so we all have the, there's a certain expectation. I don't know if yeah. that would count as 
uh, a genre, but it's like mm-hmm. a format we all know. Yeah, so it's potentially a terrible example is what you're saying. Exactly. But <laughs> either way, one of the benefits of scripture having multiple genres, though, is that genres speak to us in different ways. So poetry speaks yeah. to our emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and is vivid oftentimes and And like wisdom literature is something that causes us to reflect Mm -hmm. epistle is very straightforward and instructive Um, historical narratives give us examples oftentimes Mm -hmm. of like how like how we see god acting in the world Mm -hmm. and and they captive stories are captivating so like the 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 genres of scripture are not accidents they are part of like Mm -hmm. the very in other words we don't want to just distill scripture down into like abstract principles Part of the inspired uh, word is the actual genres that God has chosen yeah. to use yeah. to communicate to yeah. us. And so I, we should recognize as we read the scriptures, if we are reading a certain part of the Bible, as if, so I, I would say in general, we tend to read most of scripture like a letter, like an, like an epistle. And if you read the book of Revelation like a letter, you're going to come up with interpretations that probably aren't what the author is trying to get at mm-hmm. that, that John's not trying to communicate. Yeah. So we should recognize that. Like if, if you're going to read it like a different type of literature, you could really miss something here. Right. And so we really want to know what the author is, like his method using a genre so that we can kind of enter in and kind of know the terrain. Right. To so, use your illustration of like revelation yeah. as well as the illustration of the bear, like uh, cubs eat mm-hmm. the twins alive. Like Revelation uses imagery like right. cubs and twins. It doesn't mm-hmm. use those, but yeah. it uses imagery like mm-hmm. it's meant to yep. be like figurative. Yep. And it would be like reading it like, oh, a literal cub, a yeah. literal twins. Yes. Like, well, that would be a wrong reading of Revelation. Right. And not just Revelation, but because the genre demands that. Yeah. Yep. It's not in, it's not wanting you to read it yes. that way. And so with all that's one example in Revelation. But with all mm-hmm. of Scripture. Yep. We need we need to make sure we're reading it according to its genre, yeah. and some so that we make sure we're reading it properly based on what how it wants to be read. Yeah, and for some of the difficulty with that is in our own contemporary setting, we may not be as used to reading certain genres. We may mm-hmm. not be as True. familiar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we don't really have a form of apocalyptic mm-hmm. writing like Revelation today. Mm-hmm. Wisdom literature is probably not something that we're as familiar with. Right. I mean, today. we kind of use proverbial statements, right. but it's not something. Yeah, it's not that, super common. Yeah. And so it's helpful to know what genre we're in when we come to a book, yeah. which in this case, what genre are we in when we come to Ecclesiastes. Yeah, so we are coming into wisdom literature. Mm-hmm. So there's several wisdom books in the Bible. Uh, we have the book of Ecclesiastes. We have the book of Job. The book of uh, Proverbs is probably the first one that pops in people's heads. Uh, you you would also say a certain poem, uh, psalms mm-hmm. are wisdom poems or wisdom wisdom uh, type psalms. Yeah. Um, Did you say psalm? Song of Solomon? Yes, I did not. Okay, you yeah. did, and there I just accurate. Did. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. and and so, what what sort of things would characterize wisdom literature in general across the board? Yeah, I mean, so it's there tends to be comparison between like the wise and the foolish at times. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it, you know, they're trying to ask these big questions about life, mm-hmm. like why is there suffering or so like Job, like do, do the righteous suffer? Is that under God's plan? Mm-hmm. Um, or what does it look like to live um, well in God's world? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. Proverbs. Yep. So that's yeah. one's less, and we get into this a little bit, Proverbs is dealing less with like 
um, sort of these really tough questions right. like Job and Ecclesiastes yeah. might. But they're all dealing with this subject. They're all teaching wisdom. Mm-hmm. And wisdom, we might say, is being able to, the skill of being able to live well mm-hmm. in God's created world yeah. under his mm-hmm. under His reign. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what you might have noticed as we list those books, too, is that those, those books have a very different feel. Mm-hmm. They're all wisdom literature, mm-hmm. but they definitely feel different. Mm-hmm. Um how might you describe some of the difference between some of those books? Yeah. So like one of the things that stood out to me as well as like something of a similarity is oftentimes you get this father and son sort of thing right, too, yeah, where it's yeah. like the aged person who typically has wisdom instructing the younger person. Um, and so that's a similarity, say, between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes where mm-hmm. you get this older man um, who, you know, mm-hmm. there can be a sense where you're instructing like the younger person who is about to enter this life. Mm-hmm. Um but one of some of the differences you might see between something, say, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes or Job is like Proverbs oftentimes, well, one, you get Proverbs. It's not just wisdom literature, mm-hmm. but you actually get these proverbial statements, mm-hmm. which kind of are in these, um, you get kind of get, normally you get like two lines typically. Mm-hmm. So you get one line, another line, whether mm-hmm. they're like saying essentially the same thing or they're giving you a contrast. Mm-hmm. But it's like typically what we think of with Proverbs, these little yeah. short statements mm-hmm. that are mem- meant to be pretty pithy and yeah. memorable, mm-hmm. something that you can walk away with and you don't forget. Mm-hmm. And they're generally true yep. in, in nature. Straightforward, um, typically. So like one in our culture, might, if people still say this, I don't know, would be like an apple a day keeps the doctor away mm-hmm. or something. Like in general, like yeah. if you eat healthy, that will you won't have to go to the doctor as much or something. Yeah. It's a short, pithy way of saying that. Yeah. Right? And so Proverbs is saying these short, pithy statements about generally, this is the way the world works under God's reign, and this is the the path of blessing. This is what you should pursue. Yeah. But they don't hold true absolute in, in the sense of absolutely always the case. Right. That doesn't mean they're untrue. Right. It's not to say like, oh, well, the Proverbs are, they it's false because it doesn't come true in every case. That's yes. not what the proverb right. is intending right. to be. Yes. So just like we say an apple a day keeps a doctor away, we understand that people who who eat healthy oftentimes mm-hmm. do, time, like yeah. at times they get things, mm-hmm. they get yeah. sicknesses. Mm-hmm. Which is important because um, we don't want to read like train up a child in in, in the way uh, the way he should uh, go and and, and he when he's will old, not depart yeah. from it. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> I got distracted actually. Yeah. So you don't want to take yeah. a verse like that as an absolute promise where therefore you imply that anytime someone's kid like, yes. goes wayward that somehow mm-hmm. it was a parenting problem. Yes. It may be, but right. it also may yes. not be. Yep. But nonetheless, there's a general, like that's the general path. Mm-hmm. And that's what we should pursue. Yeah. And uh, so Proverbs deal with creation, we might say. Um, it's There's an understanding that God created the world in Proverbs, mm-hmm. and therefore the world is orderly. It it follows yeah. the rules that are embedded in it from God's creation design. Mm-hmm. That God creates it with a certain moral fabric so that the slothful person, for mm-hmm. example, is probably not going to turn out so well. And mm-hmm. the person who's more diligent, that's going to go, it's going to bode well for them. There's these sort of general yeah. principles of life from a created and therefore orderly mm-hmm. world. All of it as well, it's not simply, we have to make sure we understand, like in Proverbs, it's not simply um, skill, it's not simple, wisdom is not just skill for living or being able to live successfully, but success is defined as being one who fears God. Yeah. So as it being not just an orderly world, but a created orderly world, mm-hmm. like you are not wise according to scripture if you do not fear God, um, mm-hmm. the one who actually created it that way. Yeah. yeah but in absolutely. general, it's a very orderly sort yeah. of 
um, things are clean cut in yeah. Proverbs. Yeah. We should also point out uh, in wisdom literature, there's going to be a lot of pictures as well. So it's a little bit like poetry in that sense. Yeah. Not, maybe not quite as much. Definitely not as quite as much as like the prophets probably. Mm-hmm. But, but Proverbs is you poetry, will experience that. for example. So yes. it is going to play yes. on those pictures. Yeah. So you should expect that as well. Um, so especially the, why that's important. One, we, we don't want to assume that when, when it says a truth that is absolute, but then we also want to be paying attention like, oh, maybe this is actually a metaphor or a picture of something. Mm-hmm. And there's, it is pointing to a truth, but it's not necessarily that itself. Yeah. It's meant to re- point to like some sort of referent. Yes. Yeah. My um, mind is going to the one about like a uh, ring in a pig's nose. Isn't there a proverb like that? There is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the idea of like, that's obviously a picture. Um, I don't remember what that particular proverb yeah, was saying, yeah, yeah. but yeah. So in contrast, uh, so to, I was thinking one. I think I can't remember which one, but I, I think it's chapter four about like the word being healing to my bones. Mm, yeah, not like your literal bones right. or something like that. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> um, nonetheless, what we could probably what we could do then is contrast the the proverbial statements with the Book of Job and Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. Just feel very different, and, and we might say, yes, Proverbs. Is generally these these are general truths that you can expect to happen in the world, but we all know life is not that simple. Yeah, and so you have these other other two books that are going to deal with the the not simple part of life. Yeah, the parts where that where Proverbs maybe is not addressing yeah. these things. It's yeah. filling in. There's there's wisdom also in some of those harder areas yes, of life. That's right. Not it, just in the neat areas. Yeah, and so Job is dealing with the suffering of the righteous. And uh, because we do see that in the world and, mm-hmm. and is God still over that? And can we still trust God in that and do the righteous suffer? Or mm-hmm. is, um, gonna, you're going to get that. And how would you describe um, Ecclesiastes, how it kind of is a little bit of a contrast yeah. with and I Proverbs? Would, I would say too, like with Job, for example, <clears throat> it's like, why do the righteous suffer? Also, in some ways, in contrast to like a hyper proverbial idea where it's like things are so orderly that therefore if you suffer right. you must have sin mm-hmm. which is sort of what job's friends right. think so it's good to balance things like job with proverbs yeah. um and it, or vice versa and ecclesiastes you might say is um in some ways it's wrestling with some some of the sort of existential questions of life like um what is what is the actual good of life what mm-hmm. is the purpose of life so that may include situations like Job where they're in the place of uh, wickedness, there's righteous in the place of righteousness, there's wickedness and like some of these sort of questions. Um, but it's sort of wrestling with um, like the ultimate purpose of life mm-hmm. and what is actually good for us to do and where specifically as people who want to find joy, mm-hmm. where do we find, where can we find joy that is actually going to have substance to it and not yeah. just be fleeting yeah. and um, prove itself vanity as, mm-hmm. as the book says. Yeah. yeah I mean, there, there seems to be this, this built in assumption or foundation from the author realizing like, look, yes, the world is orderly, but it's also pretty messed up. It's and pretty we all know up, that. Yeah. And so he's going to, He's going to force us as readers to deal with that and say, okay, if the world's messed up and you know it, uh, how are you going to find any gain in this world? What are you going to do with this? Yeah. And uh, what happens is, is this wisdom literature then actually takes the form of a little bit of a chaotic yeah. book. Just like Job, you kind of feel that. It's kind of this back and forth and it, it doesn't feel as clean. 
but I feel like Job is a little bit more structured even than Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, you just try, yeah. you try to start structuring it. And you feel like, man, I keep going back and forth. I'm yeah. getting twisted. Yeah. And but yet that's all purposeful. And it seems like almost the the actual feel of the book is meant to stir up that right that frustration that exactly. we ex- all experience. Yeah. And so the form itself is meant to have that effect, which yeah. is one of the things I like about the the comp. The way it's compiled, right? And that's one of the things that it's it's you don't read it like you would an epistle where it's being it's just going to tell you something straightforward. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, um, you might think of um, wisdom literature like Job or Ecclesiastes as kind of like a um, what are those like those old jawbreakers that you kind of like suck on for mm-hmm. a while and you just have to keep sucking on it. It takes a long time. Like the mm-hmm. the way the wisdom literature is, it's just sort of one of those things that you mentally just are constantly like wrapping your head around yeah. and it's confusing and you mm-hmm. find it confusing. And if that's actually part of how it's communicating yes, to yeah. you because it wants you to feel the confusing nature of things. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that the book of Ecclesiastes is doing then it's it's deliberately taking on. Um, the the the, vo- the voice of the the message of Ecclesiastes is deliberately taking on sort of this limited perspective at mm-hmm. times, mm-hmm. where he says some statements that are particularly striking, mm-hmm. um, and that's we have to be or poses it as a question or poses as a question, way. yeah, yep. but that's but that we have to keep in mind the genre at that point where we understand that that may not be the entirety of what he's saying, yeah. the entirety of the book's message, but he may be. Um, leading us to a dead end, like yes. deliberately trying to, to to kind of bring us. He wants to convince us not just by telling us his conclusion, yeah. but by mm-hmm. helping us actually go on the journey yeah. and finding out the, the conclusion mm-hmm. for ourselves mm-hmm. to e- experience these sort of dead end roads. Yeah. So he wants to deconstruct our understanding mm-hmm. of life before he then reconstructs it. Right, reconstructs yeah, it. Yeah. But if we miss that, he's actually deconstructing us. We could end up interpreting mm-hmm. him as, as saying things that are maybe particularly bizarre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I think it's it's so important to have the big picture view of what he's getting at, right? So when he says these things that are potentially disturbing to the to the reader at first glance and um, you... To, to keep in mind where he is headed. Like he has an answer, but he wants you to feel like you don't have an answer necessarily. Right. Or, or sometimes the thought you have, uh, that is not satisfying for you. And yet you hold it. Like we got to do something about this. Yeah. Uh, like, for example, one of the questions he poses um, uh, in chapter three, he he pulls the, the audience in and is making the... Um, uh, the argument that you're just like the beast. You both die, you both go to the same place. And then he poses the question, who knows uh, whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Mm-hmm. Now, I think he's asking that rhetorically and, and the, he has an answer. Uh, and he actually, throughout the book, talks about... He, Later he he'll knows. say that yep. the spirit does return. Yep. Yep. Um, but he wants you as the reader to deal with that. Like, mm-hmm. how do you answer that? Yeah. And there's a couple options and it, it's meant to deconstruct you like I, I like the way you say that uh, and then put you back together but yeah but you have to you have to sit in it for a little bit and deal with that mm-hmm. and one of the things that we see him doing then is is he he takes a, on a perspective that at times we might say is intentionally limited mm-hmm. um because he wants us to say he uses this language of under the sun mm-hmm. or under heaven throughout the book um which probably just means sort of life on earth yeah but in many ways the way he describes sort of this under the under the sun under heaven world is sort of just life as you would perceive it just Mm -hmm. as you would see it to be Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a absence of 
um, deliberately an absence of the full perspective mm-hmm. at times, um, mm-hmm. where he wants us to see the dead end of that yeah. of that yeah. route. It's sort of like a. It's very similar at times to what we might think of as like secularism, a sort of secular perspective mm-hmm. that is void of um, sort of religious. Mm-hmm. Um, perspective added in now yeah. at times he still has he still believe like even when he is speaking from that perspective he still refers to god and things like mm-hmm. that but it still has this very limited perspective it's like um in many ways like i have really bad eyesight and if i were to take off my glasses what i could see of the world would still be like true like i'm not going to start having um like delusions it's not like i would be having an hallucination where all of a sudden what i would describe the world to be would just be a figment of my imagination and that's what the preacher is doing like he has a deliberately limited perspective it's like me with my glasses off it's blurry and it's not like fully clear and there's some there's some limitation there Mm -hmm. but what he's saying is true this is truly how he experienced life from an under the sun perspective Mm -hmm. and you might you might i mean i i agree with that i might word it a little bit different to maybe bring it out a little bit different Go way for it. that um, he's essentially going into the the reader's mind and saying and saying and pointing out this is your perspective in some sense. So yeah. he's taking on that perspective, but throughout the throughout the the rest of the book shows us he doesn't have this perspective. Right, exactly. he has the right yeah. perspective, but for this moment, I'm going to take on this way you experience the world or the way some people do. Yeah, and I'm going to show the problem with that. It's a little bit like, um, like I think Tim Keller does this a lot in his sermons. He kind of first will pose a problem and he says, okay, well, this is how some people try to experience, to solve the problem. And everybody in the audience is like, well, that doesn't work. That's foolish. Yeah. And then he's like, yeah, you're right. That, that doesn't work. Well, a lot of other, pe- other people try to solve it this way. And you're like, no, that doesn't work either. You're right. There is one answer and it's the gospel. The gospel solves it for us. And that's the way I hear the author of Ecclesiastes handling all of these issues, the, the, how we try to find gain in the world. Or like the, the Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, where, um, where you know, the, the people of Corinth had kind of were saying these things about Paul. And Paul's like, uh, well, hey, look, I, uh, this was from a Tim Keller sermon, by the way. It's one of my favorites of him. He's like, um, but Paul's like, look, I don't care what you say about me. And Keller talks about like, yeah, like that's our, our culture. Like we're like, yeah, you're right. We we don't care what other people think about us, like, because we should puff up ourselves with our own image. But that doesn't work, right? Like that, you can't find your satisfaction in the, your view of yourself. And that's exactly what Paul says. He says, I don't care what you think of me, and I don't care about what I think of me. Right. And where other cultures, like they will, they encourage that. Don't think, of, don't care about what you think, but care about what other people think. like. Is the community you fit into the community? And so both sides are saying that doesn't work. And that, that won't satisfy you. And then Paul says, yeah, I don't care what you think of me. I don't I don't care what I think of me. I care what God thinks. Like, God is my judge. And yeah. So it seems like Paul does it. It seems like the author of Ecclesiastes does it here as well. But in a very messy format. Yeah. An intentional limiter perspective that the reader has. Yeah. So it's it's an intent. It is a limited perspective. But it's. I'm glad you brought up that clarification clarification it's a deliberately taken on one so it's rhetorical mm-hmm. it's not at the end of the book we'll see that the 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 preacher throughout the book like his his view does line up with the conclusion it is he he points us to fear of god mm-hmm. um but yet but he is taking on this sort of limited perspective as part of his wisdom literature as a way to sort of lead us to these dead ends mm-hmm. to get us to his ultimate conclusion yeah Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's talk about some of the other pieces in uh, the way the book is a uh, is is sort of 
um, organized for mm-hmm. us. The one would be uh, that many, and, and you and I, Dan, have a slightly different view on this, but mm-hmm. many uh, folks would would see that there are um, sort of two characters in the book. There are at least two voices. Two voices yeah. yeah. So there are at least two voices in the book. Um, so the book, it begins with this line, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, that introduces um, sort of the, 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 the primary voice of the book. And then um, in verse two, it says, vanities of vanities says the preacher. So it's uh, this voice that is quoting the preacher. The preacher will be the main uh, voice throughout the book. Um, So there's a sort of third person voice. uh, Vanities of vanities says the preacher, quoting the preacher's thesis. And then if you go down to verse 12, it says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel, where now the preacher is speaking in the first person. And so you get sort of this introductory poem at the beginning of the book, the first uh, 11 verses where it's this poem that sort of introduces the preacher's words in the first person. Um, And then towards the end of the book, then you finally get the conclusion as well, um, where at the end, it it again concludes in chapter 12, verse 8, vanity of vanities says the preacher. So again, this voice, this other voice coming in who's quoting the preacher and then it concludes by telling us about the preacher, that the preacher taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care, um, etc., and tells us a conclusion. Now, uh, you, mm-hmm. why don't you explain just kind of how you understand that, and I'll explain how I understand that, and we'll kind of bring it all together. Yeah, so I, I take a little bit more of a view. I think now in the history of the church, I'm in the minority view in the like how people ago. currently interpret yeah. it, yeah. yeah. Long ago, I was in the more the majority uh, that it, that it is one uh, one author. It's the uh, in, in terms of one one voice character. It's two, yeah. One character using two voices in some ways, like how uh, how we talk when we talk to our kids or whatever. Like I might say, "Hey, I want make sure you know pick up your toys," uh, and then the next sentence I say, "Daddy said." pick up your toys and then I say I said or whatever yeah um, I think we do that more in language and I um, so I, I take it more that he's it's one person writing in two different voices yeah so your view would be that there is uh, is one person the main speaker throughout the whole book and at the beginning and at the end there are times where maybe he refers to himself in the in yeah. the third person like the preacher says but in many ways he's referring to himself it's yeah. sort of a rhetorical mm-hmm. uh it's rhetorical flair or something we might say mm-hmm. whereas the view i would take in as you said is uh, the prophets speak like that at times mm-hmm. yeah like there's they they act they are speaking in the first person but they sound like they're speaking in the third person sure yeah the, so the view that i would take which as you said is probably more the majority view at least currently is that we do get two different it, it's not to say that there are multiple authors to the book necessarily in terms of who actually wrote it but as it's being written and compiled um you have not just two voices but the voices are probably two different characters represented mm-hmm. and by character i don't necessarily mean they're pretend or fiction mm-hmm. fictional right. but the idea of there is the preacher who is the main speaker in the middle of the book from chapter 1 verse 12 to the um chapter 1 verse 12 to chapter 12 uh verse like eight or seven or so at mm-hmm. the end but then at, at the beginning and end you have these um, you have this other voice that's quoting the preacher mm-hmm. and he's like kind of telling us how we should understand the preacher. Like mm-hmm. here's an introductory poem to understand the main idea of what the preacher is going to mm-hmm. say. And at the end you get the 
um, his conclusion about how we should be, have read the preacher and the ultimate mm-hmm. conclusion we should take away. Yeah. Now, our views are not really too much at odds. That's a yeah. very slight it could difference. Be, it could be. But, but they're not because of the way we read the book. And it would be if you were doing reading on the book of Ecclesiastes, um, like reading what p- other people write, you might come across some views that at times mm-hmm. would be a bit different than mm-hmm. ours. Probably or, the big one would be that that holds the foundation of your view, that there's two, two voices, characters. Yeah. The person at the be- very beginning of the book and the very end of the book is actually critiquing the preacher yeah. and thinks that the preacher's limited perspective is a wrong perspective, and he's correcting him at the end of the book. Yeah. Which you don't hold that view. No. And so, which means our, our view is essentially um, on the ground ends up being essentially ends up the working same, the same way. Yeah. Rhetorically, he's, he has the same goal. So to clarify what you're saying, there are some people, um, I would say, I believe this is more of a minority view, but there are some people because they're with the two voices, they take those two voices as being in conflict. Yes. So the person mm-hmm. on the outside, the narrator who is quoting the preacher, mm-hmm. this is what the preacher says. Vanity is vanity says the mm-hmm. preacher. They view him as that's the voice we should listen yeah. to. But the preacher is kind of like Job's friends. Yeah. He says mm-hmm. things that at times are right or sound good, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, we have to critique him. Yeah. Um, so the preacher went, so in other words, they take some of the things that the preacher says throughout the book that we might find troubling. And they say, exactly. Those things yeah. are troubling. Mm-hmm. He's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Dan and I, we understand that the preacher's message agrees with the right. conclusion yep. of the whole book, mm-hmm. whether you view it as essentially one person like Dan does or me, where you see it as, actually two different sort of people, Mm -hmm. those two people, at least in my view, are in concert. Mm -hmm. They're saying the same thing. And because the end of the book will tell us that the point is that we should fear God, Mm -hmm. the preacher tells us to do that throughout. He points us Mm -hmm. to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. And and when he takes those sort of, Mm -hmm. when he says those things that at times we find difficult, I think we're better off seeing that as a function of the wisdom literature, Mm -hmm. as not him just having this wrong view but as mm-hmm. him him leading us to dead ends yeah. to get us to the right view that's right yeah so yeah yeah that's right so you're pointing out something else in terms of just the kind of the method of because i guess we didn't mention this with the dead ends throughout the dead ends there is kind of this path that he lays down um, yeah slowly getting us to the end that, yeah that are these what you might call above the sun moments where there, there is a way to find joy and this is a gift from God uh, for um, for His people, yeah. right? For, um, and so, throughout the book, there He keeps giving hints. Which by the end of the book, you you are almost like begging, like, "Okay, you keep telling me there yeah. is a way to find joy in this messed up world. I need it. I need it. Where do yeah. I find it? Yeah. Which He's also tipped off uh, or t- tipped us on all, all along through the book. It's in the fear of God. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I'm just saying throughout the yeah, and we'll talk about that more in the next episode too. But one of the things we see, to, like you're saying, to show that there's agreement is that the preacher is gesturing towards the mm-hmm. conclusion throughout. Yes. He gives us these hints that, in many ways, feel different than yeah. his limited the moments where he speaks from that more limited perspective. Yeah, yeah. he which, breaks out of it occasionally, yeah. which is why though we both feel it, it's it's important that either whether you view it as one character or two characters um, speaking in these voices. To hold the view that the preacher is correct. He has a right understanding yeah. of the world and where to find joy. Yeah, his ultimate perspective is one that is what we is, is accurate, yeah. even at times yeah. when he rhetorically takes on that limited mm-hmm. perspective. And so the other piece we should talk about as well is um, maybe like audience and author. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, in terms of the audience, that one we can probably 
tackle pretty quickly because mm-hmm. we don't know a whole lot right. about the audience yep. in this case. Mm-hmm. Normally, that's helpful when we look at a book because mm-hmm. um, knowing more about the audience. Yeah. It's not knowing, like he's writing into a specific situation yeah. or something like that. So, so like, it's very, very or pretty timeless right. of an audience. Right. Because normally, if we know more about the audience, we know more about like why it's being written yes. to them and therefore it illuminates. But in this case... As with Pretty a lot much of anybody under the sun, yeah, a lot of a lot of case with wisdom literature too. It is it does have that more of that timeless character, yeah. Where it's it's because it's dealing with wisdom, which in many ways is you know this timeless attribute, mm-hmm. and quality, and virtue, is that it's not tied to a specific situation mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you would think Paul's epistle to the Galatians, where he's writing about some heresy that's entered their church. Yeah. This is meant to be read. Like wisdom is meant to be read just broadly. Yeah. The other thing too is it's it's not necessarily uniquely. There's not a lot of uniquely Jewish, um, like um, the sort of the the religion of of the Jewish people mm-hmm. that's baked mm-hmm. into this book, mm-hmm. like you might find in other um, parts of the Bible. Yeah. And so some people have speculated, like he doesn't talk. He does talk about like the temple and things like yeah. that occasionally. Chapter five. But it's not so prominent like you would find. Um, in other parts of the Bible where some people have speculated that maybe this book is almost meant to be evangelistic mm-hmm. and like going out to Gentiles too, mm-hmm. which could get into our application of this book as being mm-hmm. a really good evangelistic yeah. book. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> so we don't know much about the audience. What do you think about the author? So the author piece, um, so clearly we get indications in the text that gesture or allude to Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple things there, as we already mentioned, the first verse of the, of the whole book, it says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll kind of just survey some of the data here. Is it doesn't notice it doesn't call him Solomon, mm-hmm. um, and nowhere in the book does it call him Solomon. So um, that is interesting. You might expect it to say Solomon if it wanted to communicate that. Nonetheless, there are details that would point that direction. So we're talking about the son of David, we're talking about king in Jerusalem. That obviously matches up with Solomon. Um, it could be not just the immediate son of David, which would be mm-hmm. Solomon, but it could be referring to like any of the yeah. sons of David. This is like, very common throughout the kings. Yeah, just referring to the kings from David's line mm-hmm. as the son of David. In verse uh, 12, you get how he's the, pre- the preacher has been king over Jerusalem. Um, I'm trying to remember which verse it is. I think, um, I know it's, I believe it's in chapter two where he says that he's had Wisdom that surpassed all those who were... 116. 116. Wisdom over more than all all those... Yeah. ...in Jerusalem before me. So that obviously is very... Solemn. Very very Solomon-like. Solomon-like. Solomon-like is that... Solomon as we know... Solomonic? Solomonic. (laughs) I don't think that would It sounds good. It's a a quality of... uh, We know that Solomon was someone who was gifted by God with great wisdom. Yeah. So there's a lot of indicators that sort of point towards Solomon in that respect. Um, I don't think it's a hill we have to die on because mm-hmm. the book doesn't I, like directly identify him as Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of illusions. The other possibility is that the book could be casting um, the preacher as someone who's very who's like Solomon. Um, whether it is so in other words, whether it is mm-hmm. actually Solomon who wrote mm-hmm. these the words of the preacher mm-hmm. or whether it's um, like a persona, a persona yeah. that's very much like trying to take the form yeah. of someone likes the uh, mm-hmm. of Solomon. What does that gain? I think there's yeah. a, an important rhetorical value yeah. to that. In the yeah, book. let me add one more thing to it, and then I'll Go I can for answer it. it. So in chapter two, verse nine, it also talks about him becoming great and surpassing all who were before him in Jerusalem. And my wisdom stayed with me. So right before that, it was talking about possessions. 
So um, is this person was extremely wealthy, more than any other king that was before him, which also um, has a very Solomon-like, because the, the kingdom was its greatest during Solomon's reign. Yeah. Um, of course, Solomon was only the third king. Um, you had Saul, and you had David. And then, and then David. Yeah. So it is a little bit peculiar for him to be like, that's one of the arguments against Solomon yes. that people raise is like, what does it mean when he says, before all those who are over me in Jerusalem, yeah. and you're like, there was only one. David, because technically even Solomon wasn't reigning in Jerusalem. Unless it's yeah. referring to um, the kings prior to yes. like the Hebrew kings, yep. the Israelite kings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it all, And also to add to the possibility of Solomon is verse chapter 1, verse 12, king over Israel. Right. So yeah. that would be the United Kingdom. Because Israel was, to explain that, Israel yeah. was the name for the northern kingdom of Israel. Yeah. So obviously after Solomon... Uh, the kingdom was split. Yeah. So you wouldn't refer to the kings after Solomon as reigning over Israel. Yeah. Because by definition, in Jerusalem, that's the southern kingdom. That's right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyhow, your question, though, is more where we can go. Um, yeah, it seems to have this idea. So he's going to kind of go on this experiment uh, to, to ex- try to find gain in this messed up world. Like, that's the opening question in chapter one. What is there to gain? Um, and he's going to test this out like it's chapter two he's going to seek possessions yeah maybe if i just get all the pleasure possible then i will have gain in this world yeah it's a very observational yes approach yeah like throughout the book you get these statements frequently of i saw i saw mm-hmm. i went and i did this i mm-hmm. went and I did that so you get sort of this empirical flavor of you're going on a journey with someone who's actually going to try to test these things yeah. out and so by that, then you're, it's, it's not like, like if I did that, everybody would like, if I was trying to find um, meaning in, in possessions, people would be like, well, yeah, but you just don't have enough money. Right. So like you, you didn't actually really get to test this out. Right. But Solomon here, he has more money than anybody, more wisdom than anybody. It's like he has, he is the person, if there's ever been a person who would do this, to experiment this and really find out, he would be the guy. Yeah. And so I think it's, whether it's actually him or a persona of him, that's that's the goal of the the author to have on the audience. Yeah. We can trust this preacher um, in, in what he's saying. So like in chapter two, verse 12, it says, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly for what can the man do who comes after the King only what has already been done. It's this idea mm-hmm. of like, if he can't do it, yeah. like we say in commercials, if I can do it, anyone can, yeah, yeah. but he would say, if I can't do it, right. no one can yeah. because he's the, he's the par excellence person to do right. this. He's the top of the top. It's an airtight case. Like mm-hmm. if he finds that something is vanity, you're inevitably going mm-hmm. to as well because mm-hmm. you can't beat what he has already done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the practical value of that is that it, whether it's Solomon or whether it's a Solomon-like persona to carry out the the quest as Solomon would have, mm-hmm. um, it universalizes the application. Mm-hmm. It yeah. takes the conclusion that the preacher found and it says this applies to everybody. Mm-hmm. No mm-hmm. one can top this. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So yeah. would you add anything else to method? Or? Um, I don't think so. I, th- I think I would just say I, I liked I, I liked the whole idea of um, this book is meant to be because of what we've discussed. It is meant to be you, you should feel a little bit of chaos in your soul as you read it. Yeah. And that's what I like. It, it comes and cleans you up from the inside by making you feel the chaos a little bit. And it's to be read and um, a little bit slow. 
and you, you kind of mess with yeah, yeah, meditative. Let me let me close with this quote from Great. a guy named David Gibson, and then we'll close out this episode um, and and come back with the message next time. David Gibson says this, reflecting on what you just said. He says, part of the brilliance of Ecclesiastes is that it teaches us that life often slips through our fingers and eludes our comprehension. How? By itself, being itself elusive and perplexing. Mm -hmm. Is there a better way to explain how life can leave you scratching your head than by writing a book that leaves you doing the same? Mm -hmm. The message of the book is mirrored in the effect of the book. Thank you.